0: For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with Ari Shapiro about his upcoming appearance in Tucson singing and dancing with his stage partner Alan Cumming. The visionary science fiction novel, The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin, has been adapted for the stage by Tucson's Rogue Theater. Listen to a discussion about the play's themes of gender, race, and difficult relationships. Critically acclaimed author Luis Alberto Urrea shares some happy memories of his friendship with Ursula K. Le Guin. And Stories That Soar shares a tale about the emotions a second grader faces during a surprise spelling test. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. It's not really a secret that All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro can sing, but his latest project is a surprise even to him. Shapiro has a traveling cabaret show, and his stage partner is the famous actor of stage and screen Alan Cumming. It's called Ach and Oi, a Considered Cabaret, and it will be at the Fox Tucson Theater next Wednesday. So I talked with Ari Shapiro about how it came to be, starting with where he was calling from.
1: Right now I'm at NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C. Um, It's a pretty good snapshot of the various components that make up my life because (laughs) today I'm hosting All Things Considered. Last night I was on stage with the band Pink Martini, Mm -hmm. and this weekend I'm going to be performing with Alan Cumming.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think our listeners think of NPR headquarters as being like Epcot Center. You know, like (laughs) lots of different worlds. Yeah, geodesic dome and monorails (laughs) and all that business. So, well, you
1: know, there is kind of like weekend edition and the arts desk and the newscast unit. So, the tiny desk, of course, to a certain extent, I guess the comparison is apt.
0: Do you ever drop by the tiny desk to hang out? Oh, of
1: course. It's one of the best perks of working here in the building is that you get to see these amazing artists, some you've heard of and some you haven't, and some you will soon know very well, (laughs) um, in these really intimate settings.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, I know our listeners certainly think of it that way. I remember the first time when I was a board op and I got to... Pull the switch on All Things Considered. And I heard the news, 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 news theme song. (laughs) Is is that the lyrics? Yeah, those are the lyrics, yes. And (laughs) I was, uh, you know, I was so thrilled because I started listening to NPR when I was in like junior high because I was hearing stories I wasn't seeing on TV. And uh, it really moved me. Can you share some of the excitement that you felt?
1: Yeah, I grew up listening to NPR. Um, My first involvement with public radio was volunteering for the local station in Portland, Oregon, OPB, during a pledge drive, answering phones. And when I started at NPR as an intern to Nina Totenberg, we were in a different building than we are now, and the lobby had headshots of all of the on-air hosts, reporters, and whatnot. And I just remember standing in the lobby and thinking again and again, that's what that person looks like? (laughs) And then meeting them in the flesh and thinking, wait, I know Robert Siegel's voice really well. Why is it coming out of a stranger's mouth? (laughs) Like, Robert Siegel is somebody I know. I don't know this guy standing in front of me.
0: Well, I have it on good word that Alan Cumming will never listen to this interview. So you are free to say anything you'd like to say about him. And I'm sure our audience, one of their First questions is going to be, how did Ari Shapiro and Alan Cumming come together as performing partners?
1: You know, Alan and I did a few things on stage together over the years where I first um, met him backstage because a friend of mine was in Cabaret with him the second time he did it on Broadway. And then he asked if I would do a live interview with him on stage about one of his books And then um, I was doing a solo cabaret show in New York, and he joined me to sing a song. And then the third time we did something together on stage, it was the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, and we were talking about the intersection of pop culture and LGBTQ rights. And as we were walking off the stage, Alan turned to me and said, You know, we always have such a good time doing these things together. We should make a show. And I said... Alan, don't joke about that, because I will absolutely take you up on it. And he said, I'm not joking. And so we went out that night, and all night long, as we were kind of bar hopping, we were dreaming up things that could be part of our show. And then the next morning, he texted me. It was kind of a morning after text. And he said, I meant what I said last night. When can you come up to New York and figure out what this show is going to be? So we spent one weekend at his place in New York, and then one weekend at my place in D.C. around my piano. My husband was taking notes on the back of a cardboard pizza box. And the next time we saw each other, we were performing it live for the first time. And it's been this whirlwind roller coaster ever since, doing it all over the country, including in Tucson on November 8th
0: at the (laughs) Tucson Fox Theater. I really have to say that the idea of putting together a show, a cabaret presentation of favorite songs and stories, that really sounds exciting. That sounds like getting the keys to the candy store.
1: We like to say it combines the best thought-provoking, insightful conversations of a public radio segment with the kind of entertaining body, song and dance numbers that you might expect from an Alan Cummings show. So it's it's two great tastes that taste great together. (laughs) And um, I do think we have a great rapport, and the show is never exactly the same twice. We're always kind of ribbing each other, surprising each other, and having a great time, and hopefully the audience enjoys it as much as we do.
0: I wonder, like, okay, we know we've got singing and we've got storytelling. Is there fire eating, balloon animals? Like, how many Not
1: yet. But as I said, the show is slightly different every night. So who knows? Maybe in Tucson, we will be fire eating for the first time. (laughs) There is a smell-o-vision element. I'm not going to give too much away. It's just that little teaser. You can interpret it how you will and then come see the show and you'll find out what we mean.
0: Tell us about what it was like for you to talk to Alan, who had more experience in this field than you did at the beginning.
1: That's the thing is people
0: have often
1: asked me, is it intimidating to share the stage with somebody who is as tremendously accomplished as Alan? I mean, he's been making movies, TV shows, plays and more for Decades, and he's known for everything from the Good Wife to Cabaret to Spy Kids to Schmigadoon, and on and on. The Traitors is the latest thing, but far from being intimidated by it, I feel like he is so experienced. He is so good at what he does. He is so confident and comfortable on stage that I just know if I jump, he'll catch me. If the train is going off the rails, he knows how to get back on track. It's the most relaxed, fun experience. I can imagine having on stage, because at the end of the day, we're just two friends having a good time together.
0: What about a pre-show ritual? Is there anything that you and Alan really like to do before you take the stage?
1: He likes to have a vodka soda. (laughs) And yourself? Um, uh, I don't have a vodka soda before I take the stage, but um, we do this sort of odd thing. So the third member of our troupe is our pianist, Henry Kapersky. And it's sort of like we make eye contact and we like put our hands in the center and we huddle around and we kind of go and like wiggle our fingers and look back and forth between each other and then we kind of like explode into like and then we go out and get take our places and get ready to go on stage that's that's the last thing we do before we take the stage
0: Ari Shapiro and Alan Cumming bring their considered cabaret to the Fox Tucson Theater on Wednesday November 8th In 1969, fantasy and science fiction author Ursula K. Le Guin wrote a groundbreaking novel called The Left Hand of Darkness. She imagined a planet so cold it's called winter, a world that does not have war, and most importantly, a world where the inhabitants are ambisexual. They have no fixed gender, but instead shift between male and female aspects at regular times in their life cycle. Into this world comes a stranger named Jinli Ai, a human male who is an emissary from a collection of worlds at least 17 years away if you're traveling close to light speed. He offers the natives of Winter a chance to join this collective, but he also finds them to be suspicious of him with complex motivations. This month, Tucson's Rogue Theater is debuting an ambitious stage adaptation of The Left Hand of Darkness, and here is the lead actor and the director to tell us more.
2: Hi, my name is Kevin Aosu, and I play Jen Ai in Left Hand of Darkness.
3: I'm Cynthia Meyer, one of the co-founders of the Rogue Theater and the adapter of The Left Hand of Darkness. I first read The Left Hand of Darkness in 1975 when I was a freshman in college. We were taking a class called Anthropology of Science Fiction. And I was really struck and intrigued by the novel at the time and have since read several of Ursula Le Guin's stories and novels. And with the current discussion about gender fluidity, I was reminded of the novel and went back and reread it and said, yes, we can put this on the stage and I'd love to do the adaptation for it.
0: So, Kevin, I'd like to ask you, how did The Left Hand of Darkness come into your world?
2: (laughs) Um, It came into my world by my agent sending me the audition. It's saying, you should audition for this. And then this summer, I finally got to sit down and read the book. And what she says in that forward about science fiction being a thought experiment was something that resonated with me so much because it made me think back to all the sci-fi stories that I read growing up and being like, these stories allowed me to see myself in the world in a way that I hadn't really thought about before that I didn't know could exist. Like, what is it to be out in space? And it was a nice full circle moment for me because it really reminded me of those moments when I was in high school and middle school reading books, sci-fi books. And being allowed and able to dream, and then having it come back to this moment, being able to be a part of this production—it's—it's it's been a—it's been a lot of fun.
0: What is the importance of Jin Lee I being a black man? It's very interesting, actually.
2: Two parts, because like for me as. A black man experiencing coming to Arizona. I've never been to Arizona before. Like the show is all white actors and me. So like that experience as a black man coming into a new space is one. But then when I think about it in Jin I's shoes, his experience going to Gethin, race comes up in an aspect of like, your skin color is literally different. Your race as a human being, your race is different. Right. It's not the prejudices that we have assigned to race that attach it to color and like capability or relationship to the world. It's strictly, literally race. And I think that it gives an opportunity for the story to be so multi-layered without us having to put anything extra on it. But I think generally I being black really changes the experience of the audience and the perspective of the audience. And I think it forces you to ask a question and dig deeper, well, what is my relationship to race? and like, What is my
0: relationship to my preconceived notions about race? It makes me want to ask Cynthia about the fact that the natives of the planet that Gen Lee visits are not judging him based on the color of his skin. They're judging him based on something entirely different. Can you explain to our audiences quickly how gender comes into play on the planet that we have called Winter?
3: The planet is peopled by individuals who are neither male nor female. As the book says, they are neither and both. Once a month, they go into a cycle called Kemmer, in which they become one sex or the other. They become male or female in order to mate. So what happens is that you have people on, on the planet who are uh, fathers of some children and mothers of other children. And so when Gen Ai comes to the planet, the thing that's most interesting to the people of the planet about Li Ai is that he's permanently male. Sometimes he's called a pervert. Sometimes he's looked at as just a really strange alien because of his permanent gender.
0: There's an interesting moment where Lee asks another character if they have children and the person responds, I have sired three but born none. Mm -hmm. So, Kevin, how would you describe the nature of the central relationship in The Left Hand of Darkness? What is that relationship?
2: Um, I'd say the central relationship is between Jin Lee, I, and Estravan. Um, <laughs> so, when we first started the rehearsal process, I jokingly said it was a um, buddy like road trip movie, <laughs> uh, buddy road trip experience. Uh-huh. What is it when two people who don't see each other as alike, don't see each other as the same, Jin Lee thinks that the differences are more important, that the similarities are coming together? what is that experience of two people going on that journey together and eventually having to come together, especially if they're alone and they can only rely on the, on each
0: other. Often in the book, which surprised me because it was written by a feminist author, the female aspects of the characters are identified when they are being dishonest or manipulative. Then Le Guin says the character was acting female what do you have to say about that aspect of the place, Indy? Um, how the the dual nature of the natives of winter or Gethin is brought to life?
3: There is an assumption that in in the novel, and I think in Le Guin's writing of, of the time, that the neutral is male. Um she uses the pronouns he and him in the novel to describe the people of Gethin who are neither he nor she's um so it definitely has that bias in it but the the feminine qualities that she identifies in the novel of deception or not being trustworthy are really what gen liee sees it speaks to gen liee's um sexism, which I think she purposefully does with the novel. She, she brings in a straight, black, male, somewhat sexist protagonist. And through the course of the novel, he comes to understand uh, gender fluidity in a way that he doesn't initially. And, and in fact, it's, it's him that identifies those feminine qualities of dishonesty and lack of trust and so on.
0: Obviously, this is a very dense book, Cynthia. So in adapting it, what was your barometer to measure what you felt needed to be in the play to communicate the story?
3: I think the essential message of the novel is what it means to be the other. The novel sort of turns that on its head by having um, the other be us, people who are gendered beings. And so in choosing what elements from the book to include, what scenes from the book to include, I try to stay focused on that theme. The journey that Gen i goes on is really uh, important of going from being this person who's there to do his job and get people to join the ecumen to the p- kind of personal transformation that happens mm-hmm. and there's there's actually a, a monologue that Gen has that I I thought might be interesting to include in the interview uh, that kind of speaks to that change that happens in him
2: it seemed to me and I think to Estravan that it was from this sexual tension that friendship between us arose. A friendship so much needed by us both in our exile. It might as well be called now, as later, love. But it was from the difference between us, not from the likeness, but from the difference that that love came. And it was itself the bridge across what divided us. For us to meet sexually would be for us to meet once more as aliens. We had touched in the only way we could touch we left it at that i do not know if we were right we slept in the morning it was all to do over we did it over for 50
0: days kevin auso stars in the left hand of darkness adapted and directed by cynthia meyer tonight through november 19th at the rogue theater in tucson at the very beginning of his award-winning literary career, which includes works like Nobody's Son, The Hummingbird's Daughter, and House of Broken Angels, author Luis Alberto Urrea got to meet one of his writing heroes, Ursula K. Le Guin. Next, Urea shares how they began as mentor and student and became lifelong friends.
4: I was a fan. I was in college. It was 1977. My father had just died. Terribly in Mexico, and uh, you know, it was kind of in a, a very lost place, and I didn't know how to deal with it except to write about it. And at the same time that I was struggling with this, uh, Le Guin was brought in as a guest faculty member, at University of California, San Diego, and um, I was doing the writing thing, and I gave the story about my father's death to my professor who was responsible for bringing Le Guin, and uh, he took my story to her. You know, this was unbeknownst to me. I had no idea what was going on. And uh, she told him she wanted to meet me. So he told me, you have to go meet Ursula Le Guin. I said, no, no, I, I can't do that. He said, no, 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 she wants to meet you and talk about your story. I thought,
3: damn, man.
4: I can't do this, you know, and I hadn't planned to try to get in her workshop or anything. I was, I hero worshiped her. So my professor took me to the apartment they'd rented for her in La Jolla. And um, it was to me, like the inside of the album cover for Led Zeppelin IV, where the (laughs) acolyte is climbing a cliff, you know, to the wizard uh, and there's a light. That was what it was like. They had an apartment for her next to the sea in La Jolla. She was upstairs, and I walked up thinking, I'm going to die. (laughs) I had never (laughs) met anybody famous. That was it. And the door opened, and I didn't know what I expected, but there was this pixie standing there. She was quite tiny, and she had that famous sort of page boy haircut going gray. But the thing that just flabbergasted me was not only did in one hand she have what looked like a highball or some sort of whiskey with a couple of rocks, in the other hand, she had a pipe, like a Meerschaum pipe, and she was puffing away on it.
0: Very Gandalf. And
4: she, she she's very Gandalf. And she looked at me and she said, Luisito, like that. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, man. And she said, come in, come in. And uh, she had a little couch and a, a coffee table and a couple of chairs, and she sat in the chair sideways she was so tiny she could sit sideways with her feet up and i sat on the couch she had the mimeograph which should date me on the table of the story and she said tell me about your father's death so i started babbling and she listened very listening and she said now tell me about you so i you know told her some things about myself And she said, I I really like your story. And I said, oh, that's so great. Thank you. And she said, I I would like to buy it. And to point out how naive I was at the time, I said, well, why do you want to buy it? You already have it right there. (laughs) And she said, no, no, Luisito, no. I want to publish it. I'm editing an anthology. And I thought, are you serious? And uh, so that's how our relationship began. She was straight up, always funny, always caring, but tough. And so she decided to raise me up into being a professional writer.
0: Let's back up just a little bit because you used the term fan and you even said hero worship regarding how you felt about her. Explain to our listeners, people who have maybe never read an Ursula Le Guin book, what Uh, it was about her writing style and her authorship that captured you.
4: I was a Science fiction and fantasy fiend as a young guy. Something in her work, which I re- I found out later was, you know, I think what I was responding to was she was a Taoist. She she had a strong sense of of the Tao, and you know she was from an anthropological family, so she had all these interests that I had and shared, and I had several Asian faculty members at the time. And I felt like I was some kind of brilliant literary detective finding these themes coming through her work. And also she had just a cracking, amazing writing style. And she wrote these fabulous stories, especially at the time when I met her, I was embroiled in the the Earthsea trilogy and having my mind blown by that. And, you know, left hand of darkness, was way overwhelming and astonishing work. So for me, she was in a a very small, I would say, society of authors that made me insane. And that was (laughs) Harlan Ellison, Ray Bradbury, herself, some of the young guy kind (laughs) of writers from the time Vonnegut, of course, and Richard Broadigan and all all these sort of fanciful writers that would dare to to break a mold and and go elsewhere. So she transported me um, in so many ways. But she was also personally the most amazing, delightful, hilarious person, we would often rather than write to each other, just send each other little blank postcards with cartoons we had drawn. You know we spent a lot of time in that semester when she was at the school we'd walk around and she's the one who told me uh now it's time for you to be a feminist it's 1977 i was like really (laughs) how do i do that and she said well for the rest of your career you will take women's literature courses which was you know fantastic guidance from her um and uh on a trivial note i got to take her on a date the first time she saw star wars imagine that and she was sitting sideways in her seat you know leaning into me and correcting the science errors <laughs> i will never forget you know when they jump into hyperspace she'd say you know the stars should be turning blue and then when they'd slow down she'd say that should be turning red but she laughed and hooted like everyone else. But I'll never forget at the very end, you know, the big, the big ending with everybody cheering and all that. And uh, she leaned over to me and she said, "Lisito, this is terrible. It's like some high school graduation." <laughs> 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 Ursula, you you rock. You're incredible. She was always delightful, you know, and. I think at a time, I mean, I just lost my dad. I was, you know, about to graduate. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. And, uh, you know, she opened the path of my lifelong dream.
0: Ursula K. Le Guin died in 2018 at the age of 88. Her obituary in the New York Times had the quote, the writer's pleasant duty is to ply the reader's imagination with the best and purest nourishment that it can absorb. Her friend, and my guest, was Luis Alberto Urrea. His latest novel is called Goodnight Irene. The Tucson nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a professional group of performers and musicians called Stories That Soar. Their mission is to help young writers realize the potential of bringing their stories to life for the stage, video, and radio. This week we'll hear from Mackenzie, a second grader from Robinson Elementary, who wrote a simple story on the back of a spelling test that all of us can relate to. Good morning Mackenzie.
5: Are you ready for your big test?
3: Good morning. Test? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah.
5: All right class, clear your desks and grab a pencil. It's time for our spelling test. Quiet down, please, quiet down, thank you. All right, I will call out the words one by one, giving you time to write down the words between each one. Any questions? Okay, let's begin. First word, hope.
3: I hope I get my test right.
5: Next word, Inside
3: Inside I Oh no Useful (sighs) No, no I hope I get my test right Purple Purple P-U
5: Mistake Mistake I hope I get my
3: test right Witness Witness Witness
5: I hope I get my
3: test right (sighs) I got this.
5: Baseball. Okay, everyone, turn in your tests. Mackenzie. Yeah? Great job. You got them all right.
3: Really? I got this. Oh, that's awesome. I did it. Yeah. <laughs> I've got this. The end.
0: That was the spelling test, written by Mackenzie, a second grader at Robison Elementary. Go Roadrunners. Aspiring student-age writers can submit their stories to the Magic Box story portal now at literacyconnects.org. And listen for more stories that soar every month on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.